Today we begin an amazing journey through the book of the Bible. We start with Genesis. In all of literature, there is not another book like the book of Genesis. Not only does it span 1,800 years of the lives of the patriarchs, but it spans 8,500 years of human history. There's no book like it. It's the book of beginnings. Genesis means beginning. And there are hundreds of beginnings contained in this book. But it answers questions. Questions like, where did all this come from? What is the meaning of life? What went wrong? How do we fix it? Where do I fit in? Where does God fit in? To ever call Bible reading boring is a complete impossibility. How can you begin with the book of Genesis and imagine someone interrupting you, saying, oh, what are you reading? Oh, it's nothing. It's no big deal. I mean, God just created the physical universe. In six days, just the ordinary. No, this is the most amazing book. It's the book of beginnings. It's the beginning of the entire physical universe, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of sin and twisted pride, rebellion, and the first promise of the Redeemer who would come to fix the mess. The first blood sacrifice, the beginning of the family, and the beginning of family problems. The beginning of civilization, government, money, farming, agriculture, music, industry. The first prayer movement is raised up before you're done with chapter 4. The origin of all nations and the origin of the nation of Israel. For every book we study, we'll be having notes that are handed out and we'd encourage you to save every set. But let it be said at the beginning, the notes are at distant second to this book. Don't allow the notes to for one moment interfere with or replace your reading and feeding and praying and obeying this book. The notes are only there to help you. The notes are like the knife and fork and plate This is the food. So don't replace this with the notes or the time that we'll spend thinking together about this. For every book we study, there's going to be five sections in the notes. 
the know this book, pray this book, eat this book, live this book, and Christ in this book. The know this book is the outline. And while there's all these beginnings, and while normally if you were to ask someone the question, what's the book of Genesis about? Oh, it's the creation of the world. Well, if there's 50 chapters and the creation of the world only takes two chapters, that's probably not what the book is about. What we find is that about three-fourths of the book is all about the nation of Israel. Why the nation of Israel? Well, the nation of Israel, because what God created very quickly needed a Redeemer. In fact, the coming of a Redeemer was not an afterthought. It was there in the heart and mind of God before the creation of the world. That He would not only be Creator, but He would be also Redeemer. So that He would be the one worshipped forever. And so, the creation, as splendid and outstanding as it is, in many ways, the book of Genesis is like our birth certificate. It's the birth certificate of the, of, of our, the physical universe. It's the first two chapters of Genesis, but that's only the first two chapters. Now, if you were to think your way through the book of Genesis, let me just share with you. The first four words, in the beginning God, before anything existed, there was God. That tells us a whole lot about the way we ought to view life. The first chapter is that everything that exists owes its existence to God. The second chapter, that everything that exists not only owes its existence to God, but the God who created everything that is put us in charge and gave us very clearly what our responsibility is over the earth and what our responsibility is under God. That's only the first two chapters. Then chapter 3, what went wrong? But in chapter 3, what's going to be right there's going to be one who will come as a male child born of a woman who will crush the serpent's head and redeem this place that he has just created. All It's right there. Then chapter 4, the family. And then civilization. And all of culture. But by the time it begins unfolding, before you get to the end of chapter 11, we find out where all the nations came from and all the languages around the world. But we all have, though we have different color skin and we speak different languages, we all have one set of parents in common. And we have one God who created those parents in common over us all. But then you come to chapter 12. And from chapter 12 to chapter 50, you've got nothing less than the origin of the nation of Israel. The one nation from all the others chosen so that through that one nation, a Redeemer might be born. 
who would provide salvation for all the other nations. And to show how relational God is and how God does... He not only created the family, but works through the family line. The whole structure of three quarters of the book of Genesis is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The dad, his son, his grandson, and his great-grandsons, particularly Joseph. That's the outline of, of Genesis. So what is Genesis about? Well, if you let the chapters speak for themselves, Genesis is about the creation of the nations who needed a Redeemer who would come through the nation of Israel. That's what Genesis is about. Now, when you unfold it like that, you you begin to see a story that's being told. A story of a loving, relational God who is orderly, who has a purpose in everything, whose purpose is revealed to people. Because throughout the book, we see on every level this one God who revealed Himself to all people communicates very specifically and intentionally to everyone along the way. One of the passions that we have as the people of God is to know God. That's why when we're in worship and we sense God inviting us to spend more time, we don't mind singing a song five times. We don't mind delaying things because God wants to show Himself. And He wants us to seek Him. Every year I read through the Bible and I'm pleased to say I've got a brand new one. I'm all excited. I'm going to eat this book with you. And I want to encourage you to get a brand new Bible. Let's begin this journey together. Someone said, Dad, can I have your Bible? You've got it all marked up for me. That's like eating someone else's leftovers. I've never liked leftovers. With a few exceptions. But I like bread fresh out of the oven. I like the steaks hot off the grill. And I want my word from God to me. I don't want to read somebody else what they chewed on. I want it for myself. Well, for the past ten years, I've been reading through a Bible every year. And one year I read through, I think, three or four. But each time I do, somewhere during the year, I, I, God puts someone in my family on my heart that I read the Bible for. 
And I gave Sherry one. I gave my mother one. I gave each of my children one. I gave each of their spouses one. And this year, for the first time, on Christmas Day, I gave my grandson Alan the Bible that I had read last year. First time for a grandson. But I let them all know what I wrote. And I write them notes almost on every page. I write them little notes of what I feel like God's calling forth in them through those verses. But I let them know. Don't let my words to you distract you. Because it's not what I'm telling you. It's what God's telling you. And it's one of those dangers of preaching that somehow I could unintentionally convince you that you get God's Word from me. As if you don't eat on your own. Now, once in a while, it's nice to go to a restaurant where you trust the cooks and they prepare the meal and you eat. But God wants us all self-feeders. So I'm gonna, my commitment is, I'll do my best to prepare good food on Sunday. But I expect you each day to feed on your own. That this will supplement your own feeding and your own receiving from the Lord. And the praying this book section of your notes each week will be where in that book, in this morning in the book of Genesis, where God is manifesting His presence very clearly to people. And you can pray in similar ways and, and use those to pray back to God your own heart. The eat this book section are verses that are highlight verses that w- would do us all well to memorize. And there will usually be five, one for each weekday, So that if you want, you can supplement your study by memorizing certain verses five days a week as we work our way through the study. The live this book section are clear applications of the themes of the book that we can apply to our lives and should impact the stuff we watch on television or the way we view the, the, the evening news. Some of us have filters on our television. Some of us, most of us, have filters on our computers. Well, this is God's filter for all of us. He wants this book to be the grid through which we filter out. We rented a movie this past week. I'm sure most of us saw a movie over the holidays. Part of my commitment, if I'm going to watch a movie, I have to be willing to turn it off at any point if it's giving me a message that I know is wrong. And we experienced one of those. There were four of us watching a movie. As far as I know, we paid to watch this movie. About halfway through, it was like in unison. Turn that thing off! Why? Because it very clearly violated 
Things that this book tells us to filter. Hollywood is not Lord. World news is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is one of the the tools He's given for us to view our world. And there's no book that does a better job holistically than the book of Genesis to help us accurately view our world. Okay, would you turn to the table of contents? Turn to the table of contents in your Bible. Yes, that big zip. Unzip that thing. What are you doing with your Bible? Zip? No. Just unzip it. Turn to the table of contents. Now, I want to show you, I want to show you a picture of a library. Because if you've got a Bible there, and if you don't, spend 20 bucks and go buy yourself one. Spend 50 if you need to, but get a Bible you enjoy holding, you enjoy, you've got the right size, print, get one that's a decent translation. Because in that one book is a whole library. And this morning, I just want to help us, okay? The Old Testament, 39 books. Now, just listen. 17 are history books. Five are poetry. Seventeen are prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. You can break down the first 17 history books into two sets. It's five and twelve. Five, the books of Moses. The other twelve history books. So it goes five, twelve, then the five poets. Beginning with Job was was a book of poetry. And then Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the the five poets. Then you come to the the 17 prophets, and again, they're five and twelve. Five major prophets, major only because they're longer. Twelve minor prophets, minor only because they're shorter. So, that's the whole Old Testament. You just learned the whole Old Testament. Five, twelve, five... 512. Now, I want you to write that in your, in your, in your table of contents. In your table of contents, put a line under the first five. Put it. There you go. Under Deuteronomy, put a line. Above it, put five. And then when you get to right above Job, put a line. And then you, above that, you put 12. You got 5 and 12. And then uh, under Job, put 5. That's the five poets. Then under the book of uh, Daniel, put a line. Above it, put 5. And underneath it, put 12. That's the whole out, that's the summary of the Old Testament. You got that? Now, the New Testament goes similar. It starts off with five history books. But five divided by four and one. It's four of the Gospels and then the other history book of the book of Acts. Then you've got 13 books of Paul, beginning with the, the big enchilada, the book of Romans. And then it goes all the way through the little book of Philemon that Paul wrote to, to one former slave owner of all things. And then we come to the general uh, epistles written by a number of different people, but 
We've, it starts with the book of Hebrews all the way through the book of Jude. So put a line under Acts and then put a line under Philemon. And then put a line under Jude above Revelation because Revelation stands alone. It's the only prophetic book in the New Testament. Now there you've got the New Testament in overview. You've got five history books. Then you've got all the, the, the letters or epistles. Epistles is a fancy word for letter. These were just letters that were written. And then the final book is the book of prophecy. So that's the outline of the Old and the New Testament. Now I want to encourage you to do one other thing. Because as we study our way through the Bible, I want to make sure we're all thinking. We don't want to be passive when we read Scripture. The Bible tells us that our minds are to be active and interacting with what we're learning. And I want to encourage all of us to read with three different color pens. Blue, black, and red. Oh, Pastor, you're making this so difficult. No, I'm really not trying. I'm just trying to help us think. I need help. When I read, I need help. Blue is general information. Let's see, you're starting in the book of Genesis and you're reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wow, that sounds important. I think I'll underline that. Use blue. General information. Black are commands. Be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. Name every living creature. Okay, in chapter 2 you'll come to commands of God. That's black. Things God told other people to do. You put in black. Go, leave Ur. When He spoke to Abraham, that's black. And I will make of you a great nation. Now that's red. Red are the promises of God. One of the biggest problems we have in life is confusing what our role is and our assignment is and what God's assignment is. It's one of the biggest problems we have. This is why I encourage everyone, when you read, make sure you understand what you're told to do and what God is supposed to do. And what we're told to do, we put in black. And what God promises to do, we put in red. It makes it real simple. And it builds a mindset that I need to... What, now, today, I'm entering today. What is my responsibility and what does God promise me is His responsibility? It just helps us to live with that kind of a mindset. Blue, general information. Black, the commands of God of what we're told to do. And read the promises of God, what He promises us to do. Last week, I loved it when my three-year-old grandson, Luke, was up here building his puzzle. It was of a barnyard. And he did it again. First thing he does is he studies the front of the box. And we who've been reading the Bible for years can often get in the, the habit of just looking at individual pieces of the puzzle and we'll lack on to one verse or one chapter and we'll know little bits and pieces. But what we're going to do 
this year is to look at the front of the box. We're going to get the bigger view. And we're going to see that the whole barnyard belongs to one farmer. But he's got a a role for you to play on the farm. And we're going to discover what our role is in the farm by looking at the, the bigger overview of Scripture to see where we fit in and what our assignment is. I want us to end this morning looking at the farmer, the one who owns it all. To be true to the book of Genesis, as much as we could focus on him as creator, that's only a thin slice of the bigger picture. What we find is that the vast majority of Genesis is about Abraham and his family. When God spoke, everyone knew it was him. They had no question what he was saying. And when they obeyed, they were blessed. And when they disobeyed, they suffered the consequences. But God spoke very clearly every time he spoke. To Abraham. Abraham was told immediately. Chapter 12 of Genesis. I will make of you a great nation. In fact, through you, all the nations will be blessed. You think of that. The blessing of all the nations wasn't because of Abraham, but because of the Son, the Redeemer, who would come through Abraham, who would redeem all the nations. But it was in the promise when God first called him that your purpose here is to be part of a redemptive plan. And in a very real way, God can speak to every one of us and tell us exactly the same thing. I can tell you this morning that God has a purpose to bless you. And that through you, He wants to bless all the nations of the earth. That is true. But Abraham had it tough. This is an incredible thing. The defining moment of Abraham didn't come till chapter 22. Ten chapters later, and about who knows how many years, 80 years, he finally has a baby on his 100th birthday. And then, of all things, when the child is but a young shaver, he's got maybe a five o'clock shadow across his upper lip. He's 12 or so. God says, Abraham, I want you to take that son, that promised child, who's your bread and butter. I mean, he's the apple of your eye. He's everything. And I want you to go sacrifice him. Woo! Put that in your theology. We think, oh, if God gives me a promise, he's going to fulfill it. And if, and if he doesn't in the next three days, we get all, hey, what's going on? I thought you loved me. He waits 80 years. And then, 
The kid's 12 and God wants him to sacrifice him. The next verse says, early the next morning he got up and went out to sacrifice. He believed God and his faith pleased God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Oh, that's a hot one. But then Abraham encounters Jesus. Because Jesus was portrayed as the ram in the thicket. And Isaac represented Jesus in at least 12 ways. Abraham had one son, so did God. Abraham loved his son, so did Father God. Abraham offered his son, so did Father God. Isaac went willingly to the mountain for sacrifice, so did Jesus. Isaac carried the wood on which he was to be sacrificed. Jesus carried the wooden cross to his place of sacrifice. Isaac climbed up Mount Moriah. Jesus climbed Mount Calvary. Both went in obedience. Isaac was by rope. Jesus was bound by the nails that pierced his hands and feet. Isaac was replaced by a substitute. Jesus was the substitute. Isaac was replaced by the Lamb. Jesus was the Lamb. Not only does Isaac become a forerunner of the Messiah, so did Joseph, Isaac's grandson. Joseph was one of twelve brothers. He was born with a big vision. And by adolescence, he had high dreams for his life that God gave him. But his brothers hated him for it. And they sold him into slavery. In fact, They left him for dead in a cistern, in a huge pot that was inescapable. Left him for dead. Some of us know the rest of the story. But Joseph also represented Jesus. Some have found 130 similarities between Joseph and Jesus. Here's just 10. Joseph was loved dearly by his father, so was Jesus. Joseph was the apple of his father's eye and given the rights of the firstborn, so was Jesus. Joseph was despised and rejected by his brothers, So was Jesus. Joseph was sold for a few pieces of silver. So was Jesus. Joseph was given over to death. So was Jesus. 
He was given over to death for crimes he did not commit. He was an innocent man. So was Jesus. They were both sentenced to death. They were both raised from the dead. Joseph figuratively, Jesus literally. They were both raised to positions of supremacy in the land. Joseph over Egypt. Jesus over everything. Joseph went back and led his brothers in repentance. And so does Jesus. Joseph brought his brothers who had lied and swindled and cheated in touch with the truth. And so does Jesus. Hallelujah. Sal, you love it. Sal, you're just dying. You're just crawling out of your skin. Your, your buttons are popping off you. Hallelujah. God bless you, Sal. Hallelujah. But the one in the middle, Jacob, is the one Genesis devotes half of the book to Jacob. Abraham is covered in 13 chapters. Isaac in 15. Joseph in 15. But Jacob, 24 chapters are devoted to Jacob. And there's a reason. Jacob, of all of them, Jacob's the guy that I didn't like. Until I understood him. He's the cheat. He's the effeminate guy. He was the sissy boy. He was tied to his mother's apron strings. He was a wuss. He, he never played football or he didn't even play ping pong. And he was a liar. And he was a smart liar. He cheated his brother out of his birthright. He cheated his father, and when his dad asked him, what is your name, when he was too blind or too dark of sight to tell, he's bold-faced lie, I am Esau. And the father unknowingly blessed him and gave him the firstborn blessing, even though he was the secondborn. When he was born, his name meant deceiver or grabber. I can't stand people like that. They're the ones that elbow everybody else out of what belongs to them and they go grabbing for it. That was Jacob. But none of that disqualified him. And the coolest thing about that is when God wants you, He's going to get you. And no matter how bad you are, God can work with what you've got. And He can redeem the worst and make you first. And when you're loved by God, you're not loved by God because of how good you are. When you're loved by God, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. That's all there in Jacob. And when I realized that, then his wussy didn't bother me anymore. I can put up with a wuss when I discover all that truth about who God is and how 
I'm all right. I don't have to hide anymore. And the story of Jacob is about God calling him out of hiding and eventually changing his name from Jacob the grabber to Israel. Hello, Israel, which means the one who wrestled with God. The one who went from grabbing whatever he could get out of life, no matter who he had to climb over in the process, to the one who realized that fully on that, what I want more than anything is what only God can give me. And I want God. And that's the people that God is after. That's why He called His people Israel. Because He's looking for a people today who will wrestle with God, who will seek after God as if God is the ultimate prize to be had. And in that process, we are redeemed. And He changes us as if to change our name also. And all that is right there in Genesis 32. When Jacob spent a long night and he gets bushwhacked by a sniper who turned out to be God. And somewhere in the dark, he went from thinking this is a bad guy to realizing this is the ultimate good guy. And first he was wrestling to get loose. And then he wrestled to keep the other guy from getting loose. And I will not let you loose until you bless me. If there's one thing I want for us this year, if there's one thing that you want when you're starting a 21-day fast, is a passion to get from God everything He has for us. If you don't have that hunger, don't fast. But if you've got it, seek Him. Press in. Don't be denied. Go for the whole thing. And God had the audacity to ask him a question. It was the same question his daddy asked him, and he gave him a lie. This time God says, what is your name? And this time he answers truthfully. You see, when we fail God, it's not the final exam. Because He'll give it to us again. And He'll give it to us again until we pass. And this time He asked them, it was a one-question exam, what is your name? And this time He spoke the truth, I am Jacob. And He no sooner got the truth out of His mouth that God changes His name. No longer will I call you Jacob. From now on you're going to be Israel. That's where Israel came from. And this Jacob, who's now Israel, says, Oh, this place I've got to call Peniel. Because it's where I've seen God face to face. And there's nothing like seeing God face to face. That's what this book is all about. This book is not God. And don't worship it as God. That's why I don't mind telling you, scribble in your Bible. Go ahead and write in your Bible. Because this is not God. 
Mark up your Bible. Write your questions in the margin. But this book will take you to Peniel, where you will see Him face to face. And He will change you. And He will call forth the best in you. And He will call you on mission with Him to take seekers into the fullness of Christ.